This has also appeared to be a very extraordinary dispensation in that the Spirit of God is so much extended not only to His awakening but regenerating influences both to elderly persons and also those that are very young. It has been a thing heretofore rarely to be heard of that any were converted past middle age. But now we have the same ground to think that many such have in this time been changed as that others have been so in more early years. I suppose there were upwards of 50 persons in this town above 40 years of age and more than 20 of them above 50 and about 10 of them above 60 and 2 of them above 70 years of age. It has heretofore been looked on as a strange thing when any have seemed to be savingly wrought upon and remarkably changed in their childhood. But now I suppose near thirty were to a parent so wrought upon between ten and fourteen years of age, and two between nine and ten, and one of about four years of age. And because I suppose this last will be most difficultly believed, I will hereafter give a particular account of it. The influences of God's Spirit have also been very remarkable on children in some other places, particularly at Sunderland and South Hadley, and the west part of Suffolk. There are several families in this town that are hopefully pious. Yea, there are several numerous families in which I think we have reason to hope that all the children are truly godly, and most of them lately become so. And there are a few houses in the whole town in which salvation has not lately, lately come in one or more instances. There are several Negroes that from what was seen in them then, and what is discernible in them since, appear to have been truly born again in the late remarkable season. God has also seemed to have gone out of his usual way in the quickness of his work and the swift progress his spirit has made in his operations on the hearts of many. And it is wonderful that persons should be so suddenly and yet so greatly changed. Many have been taken from a loose and careless way of living and seized with strong convictions of their guilt and misery. And in a very little time old things have passed away and all things have become new with them. God's work has also appeared very extraordinary in the degrees of the influences of His Spirit, both in the degree of saving light and love and joy that many have experienced. It has also been extraordinary in the extent of it. It's being so swiftly propagated from town to town. In former times of the pouring out of the Spirit of God on this town, though in some of it it was very remarkable, yet it reached no further than this town. The neighboring towns all around continued unmoved. The work of God's Spirit seemed to be at its greatest height in this town in the former part of spring in March and April, at which time God's work and the conversion of souls was carried on amongst us in so wonderful a manner that so far as I, by looking back, can judge from the particular acquaintance I have had with souls in this work, it appears to me probable to have been at the rate at least of four persons in a day or near thirty in a week take one with another for five or six weeks together. When God in so remarkable a manner took the work into his own hands, there was as much done in a day or two as at ordinary times with all endeavors that men can use, and with such a blessing as we have commonly had, is done in a year. End quote. This is Reverend Mr. Edwards' general account of the wonderful revival of religion, not only at Northampton, but also in other towns, both of the county of Hampshire and of Connecticut Colony, in the year 1734, 35, and 36. For more information on this, it is in the book A Narrative of Surprise and Conversion, which I am also narrating for the Chapel Library and should be finished by the time this cassette reaches your hands. The following attestations are subjoined to this, and for particular instances of the powerful influence of the Divine Spirit, refer those who desire to read them to that remarkable narrative. To the Reverend Benjamin Coleman, Doctor of Divinity, Pastor of a Church in Boston, Westfield, October 11th, 1738, quote, Sir, in your letter of August 19th, you inform us that the Reverend Dr. Watson, Dr. Guise, 
desire that some other ministers who were eye and ear witnesses to some of those numerous conversions in the other towns about Northampton would attest unto what the Reverend Mr. Edwards has written of them. We take this opportunity to assure you that the account of Mr. Edwards has given in his narrative of our several towns or parishes is true, and that much more of the like nature might have been added with respect to some of them. We are, Reverend Sir, your brethren and servants, William Williams, Ebenezer Devotion, Stephen Williams, Peter Reynolds, Nehemiah Bull, and Samuel Hopkins. Chapter 4 Of a religious society of students at Oxford, which began about the end of 1729, their careful improvement of time and works of piety and charity, their zeal and success in preaching the gospel. At that time, the Lord was pleased to raise up and qualify a number of students at the College of Oxford in our neighborhood nation of England to be instruments of much good, although not altogether purged from the corruptions of that land. They joined in a religious society wherein they agreed upon certain methods and rules for spending their times in fasting, praying, communicating, visiting the sick and the prisoners, instructing the ignorant, and so on, and hence they were called Methodist. And being afterwards ordained to the ministry, they preached with great warmth, choosing subjects very much neglected in that church, such as the doctrines of justification by faith and the righteousness of Christ, of original sin, of the necessity of regeneration, and so on. They used also a good deal of freedom in speaking against the loose and negligent clergy, for which they were at length denied the use of churches, whereupon they went and preached in the fields and houses, collecting money for erecting schools, hospitals, and other pious uses, traveling to many places and preaching every day and several times in one day, having many thousands to hear them in London, Bristol, Gloucester, through Wales, and very many places in England. Many of their hearers were brought under great impressions, shedding tears and crying out, What shall we do to be saved? And great changes were made upon very profligate persons and upon severals who went to scoff and ridicule them. Also many of the clergy were quickened to their work by them. Section 1 From Mr. John Wesley's Journals Preface to the first journal, letter containing an account of the rise of the society in Oxford. It was in pursuance of an advice given by Bishop Taylor in his Rules for Holy Living and Dying that about fifteen years ago, 1723, I began to take a more exact account than I had done before of the manner wherein I spent my time writing down how I had employed every hour. This I continued to do wherever I was till the time of my leaving England. The variety of scenes which I then passed through induced me to transcribe from time to time the more material parts of my diary, adding here and there also little reflections as occurred to my mind. Of this journal thus occasionally compiled, the following is a short extract. It not being my design to relate all those particulars which I wrote for my own use only, and which would answer no valuable end to others, however important they were to me. Indeed, I had no design or desire to trouble the world with any of my little affairs as cannot but appear to every impartial mind, from my having been so long as one that heareth not, notwithstanding the loud and frequent calls I have had to answer for myself. Neither should I have done it now, had not Captain William's affidavit, published as soon as he had left England, laid an obligation upon me to do what in me lies, in obedience to that command of God, let not the good which is in you be evil spoken of. With this view I do at length give an answer to every man that asketh me a reason of the hope which is in me, that in all these things I have a conscience void of offense towards God and towards man. I have prefixed hereto a letter wrote several years since containing a plain account of the rise of that little society in Oxford, which has been so variously represented. Part of this was published in 1733, but without my consent or knowledge. It now stands it was, as it was wrote, without any addition, diminution, or amendment, it being my only concern here, and nakedly to declare the thing as it is. 
Perhaps my employments of another kind may not allow me to give any further answer to them who say all manner of evil of me falsely, and seem to think that they do God's service. Suffice it that both they and I shall shortly give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. Oxen, October 18, 1730. Sir, the occasion of my giving you this trouble is of a very extraordinary nature. On Sunday last, I was informed, as no doubt you will be ere long, that my brother and I had killed your son, that the rigorous fasting which he had imposed upon himself by our advice had increased his illness and hastened his death. Now, though considering it in myself, it is a very small thing with me to be judged by man's judgment, yet as a being thought guilty of so mischievous an imprudence might make me less able to do the work I came into the world for, I am obliged to clear myself of it by observing to you, as I have done to others, that your son left off fasting about a year and a half since, and that it is not yet half a year since I began to practice it. I must not let this opportunity slip of doing my part towards giving you a juster notion of some other particulars relating both to him and myself, which have been industriously misrepresented to you. In March last, he received a letter from you, which being not able to read, he desired me to read to him. Several of the expressions whereof I perfectly remember, and shall, and shall do, until I too am called hence. I then determined that if God was pleased to take away your son before me, I would justify him and myself which I now do with all plainness and simplicity, as both my character and cause requires. In one practice for which you blamed your son, I am only concerned as a friend, not as a partner. That, therefore, I shall consider first. Your own account of it was, in effect, this. He frequently went into poor people's houses in the villages about Holt, called their children together, and instructed them in their duty to God, their neighbor, and themselves. He likewise explained to them the necessity of private as well as public prayer, and provided them with such forms as were best suited to their several capacities. And being well apprised how much the success of his endeavors depended on their good will towards him, to win upon their affections, he sometimes distributed among them a little of that money which he had saved from gaming and the other fashionable expenses of the place. This is the first charge against him, upon which all that I shall observe is that I will refer it to your own judgment, whether it be fitter to have a place in the catalogue of his faults, or of those virtues for which he is now numbered among the sons of God. If all the persons concerned in that ridiculous society, whose follies you have so often heard repeated, could but give such a proof of their deserving the glorious title which was once bestowed upon them, they would be contented that their lives too should be counted madness, and therein thought to be without honor. But the, but the truth is, their title to holiness stands upon much less stable foundations, as you will easily perceive when you know the ground of this wonderful outcry, which it seems England is not wide enough to contain. In November 1729, at which time I came to reside at Oxford, your son, my brother, myself, and one more, agreed to spend three or four evenings a week together. Our design was to read over the classics, which we had before read in private on common nights, and on Sunday some book in divinity. In the summer following, Mr. M. told me he had called at the jail to see a man who was condemned for killing his wife and that from the talk he had with one of the debtors, he verily believed it would do much good, if anyone would be at the pains of now and then speaking with them. This he so frequently repeated, that on August 24, 1730, my brother and I walked with him to the castle. We were so well satisfied with our conversation there, that we agreed to go thither once or twice a week, which we had not long done. 
before he desired me to go with him to see a poor woman in the town who was sick. In this employment, too, when we came to reflect upon it, we believed it would be worthwhile to spend an hour or two in the week provided the minister of the parish, and which any such person was, was not against it. But that we might not depend wholly on our own judgments, I wrote an account to my father of our whole design, withal begging that he who had lived seventy years in the world, and seen as much of it as most private men have ever done, would advise us whether we had yet gone too far, and whether we should now stand still or go forward. Part of his answer dated September 21, 1730, was this, quote, And now as to your own designs and employments, what can I say less of them than Valde Prabo? and that I have the highest reason to bless God that he has given me two sons together at Oxford, to whom he has given grace and courage to turn the war against the world and the devil, which is the best way to conquer them. They have but one more enemy to combat with, the flesh, which if they take care to subdue by fasting and prayer, there will be no more for them to do but proceed steadily in the same course and expect a crown which fadeth not away. You have reason to bless God as I do that you have so fast a friend as Mr. M who, I see, in the most difficult service is ready to break the ice for you. You do not know of how much good that poor wretch who killed his wife has been the providential occasion. I think I must adopt Mr. M to be my son together with you and your brother Charles. And when I have such a turning in to prosecute that war wherein I am now Miles Emeritus, I shall now be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. I am afraid lest the main objection you make against your going on in the business with the prisoners may secretly proceed from flesh and blood. For who can harm you if you are followers of that which is so good, and which will be one of the marks by which the shepherd of Israel will know his sheep at the last day? Though if it were possible for you to suffer a little in the cause, you would have a confessor's reward. You own none, but such as are out of their senses would be prejudiced against your acting in this manner. But say, These are they that need a physician. But what if they will not accept of one who will be welcome to the poor prisoners? Go on then, in God's name, in the path to which your Savior has directed you, and that track wherein your father has gone before you. For when I was an undergraduate at Oxford, I visited those in the castle there, and reflect on it with great satisfaction to this day. Walk as prudently as you can, though not fearfully, and my heart and prayers are with you. Your first regular steps is to consult with him, if, if any such there be, who has a jurisdiction over the prisoners. And the next step is to obtain a direction and approbation of your bishop. This is Monday morning, at which time I shall never forget you. If it be possible, I should be glad to see you all three here in the fine end of the summer. But if I cannot have that satisfaction, I am sure I can reach you every day, though you were beyond the Indies. According to him who is everywhere... I now heartily commit you as being your most affectionate and joyful father. Quote. In pursuance of these directions, I immediately went to Mr. Gerard, the Bishop of Oxford's chaplain, who was likewise the person that took care of the prisoners when any were condemned to die. At other times they were left to their own care. I proposed to him our design of serving them as far as we could, and my own intention to preach there once a month that the bishop approved of it. He much commended our design, and said he would answer for the bishop's approbation, to whom he would take the first opportunity of mentioning it. It was not long before he informed me he had done so, and that his lordship not only gave his permission, but was greatly pleased with the undertaking, and hoped it would have the desired success. Soon after, a gentleman of Merton College, who was one of our little company, which now consisted of five persons, acquainted us that he had been much rallied the day before for being a member of the Holy Club, and that it was become a common topic of mirth at his college, where they had found out several of our customs. 
to which we were ourselves utter strangers. Upon, Upon this I consulted my father again, in whose answers were these words, December 1st, quote, This day I received both yours and this evening in the course of our reading. I thought I found an answer that would be more proper than any I myself could dictate, though since it will be easily translated, I send it in the original. What would you be? Would you be angels? I question whether a mortal can arrive to a greater degree of perfection than steadily to do good, and for that very reason patiently and meekly to suffer evil. For my part, on the present view of your actions and designs, my daily prayers are that God would keep you humble, and then I am sure that if you continue to suffer for righteousness' sake, though it be but in a lower degree, the Spirit of God and of glory shall in some good measure rest upon you. Be never weary of well-doing. Never look back, for you know the prize and the crown are before you. Though I can scarce think so meanly of you, as that you would be discouraged with the crackling of thorns under a pot. Be not high-minded, but fear. Preserve an equal temper of mind under whatever treatment you meet with, from a not very just or well-natured world. Bear no more sail than is necessary, but steer steady. The less you value yourselves for these unfashionable duties, as there is no such thing as works of supererogation, the more all good and wise men will value you, if they see your actions are of a piece, or which is infinitely more. He by whom actions and intentions are weighed will both accept esteem and reward you. Upon this encouragement, we still continue to sit together as usual, and to confirm one another as well as we could in our resolutions, to communicate as often as we had opportunity, which is here once a week, and do what service we could to our acquaintance, the prisoners, and two or three poor families in the town. But the outcry daily increasing, that we might show what ground there was for it, we proposed to our friends or opponents, as we had opportunity, these are the like questions. Number one. Whether it does not concern all men of all conditions to imitate him as much as they can who went about doing good. Whether all Christians are not concerned in that command. While we have time, let us do good to all men. Whether we shall not be more happy hereafter, the more good we do now. Whether we can be happy at all hereafter unless we have, according to our power, fed the hungry, clothed the naked, visited those that are sick and imprisoned, and made all these actions subservient to a higher purpose, even the saving of souls from death. Whether it be not our bounden duty always to remember that he did more for us than we can do for him, who assures us, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Number two, whether upon these considerations we may not try to do good to our acquaintance, particularly whether we may not try to convince them of the necessity of being Christians, whether of the consequent necessity of being scholars, whether of the necessity of method and industry in order to either learning or virtue, whether we may not try to persuade them to confirm and increase their industry by communicating as often as they can, whether we may not mention to them the authors whom we conceive to have wrote best on those subjects, whether we may not assist them as we are able from time to time to form resolutions upon what they read in those authors and to execute them with steadiness and perseverance. Number three, whether upon the considerations above mentioned we may not try to do good to those that are hungry, naked, or sick. In particular, whether if we know any necessitous family, we may not give them a little food, clothes, or physic as they want. Whether we may not give them if they can read a Bible, common prayer book, or a whole duty of man. Whether we may not now and then inquire how they have used them, explain what they do not understand, and enforce what they do whether we may not enforce upon them more especially the necessity of private prayer and of frequenting the church and sacrament, whether we may not contribute what little we are able toward having their children clothed and taught to read, whether we may not take care that they be taught their catechism and short prayers for morning and evening. Number four, lastly, 
whether upon the considerations above mentioned we may not try to do good to those that are in prison, in particular, whether we may not release such well-disposed persons as remain in prisons for small sums, whether we may not lend smaller sums to those that are of any trade, that they may procure themselves tools and materials to work with, whether we may not give to them who appear to want at most a little money or clothes or physic, whether we may not supply as many as are serious enough to read with the Bible in whole duty of man, whether we may not, as we have opportunity, explain and enforce these upon them, especially with respect to public and private prayer and the Blessed Sacrament. I do not remember that we met with any person who answered any of these questions in the negative, or he who even doubted whether it were not lawful to apply to this use that time and money, which we should else have spent in other diversions. But several we met with, who increase our little stock of money for the prisoners and the poor by subscribing something quarterly to it, so that the more persons we proposed our designs to, the more were we confirmed in the belief of their innocency, and the more determined to pursue them in spite of the ridicule which increased fast upon us during the winter. However, in spring, I thought it would not be improper to desire further instructions from those who are wiser and better than ourselves. And accordingly, on May 18, 1731, I wrote a particular account of all our proceedings to a clergyman of known wisdom and integrity, after having informed him of all the branches of our design as clearly and simply as I could, I next acquainted him with the success it had met with in the following words, quote, Almost as soon as we had made our first attempts in this way, some of the men of wit in Christ Church entered the list against us, and between mirth and anger made a pretty many reflections upon the sacramentarians, as they were pleased to call us. Soon after, their allies at Merton changed our title and did us the honor of styling us the Holy Club. But most of them being persons of well-known characters, they had not the good fortune to gain any proselytes from the sacrament until a gentleman eminent for learning and well-esteemed for piety joining them told his nephew that if he dared to go to the weekly communion any longer, he would immediately turn him out of doors. That argument indeed had no success. The young gentleman communicated next week, upon which his uncle, having again tried to convince him that he was in the wrong way, by shaking him by the throat to no purpose, changed his method, and by mildness prevailed upon him to absent from it the Sunday following, as he had done five Sundays and six ever since. This much delighted our gay opponents, who increased their number of pace, especially when shortly after one of the seniors of the college, having been with a doctor, upon his return from him, sent for two young gentlemen severally, who had communicated weekly for some time, and was so successful in his exhortations that for the future they promised to do it only three times a year. About this time there was a meeting, as one who was present at it informed your son of several of the officers and seniors of the college, wherein it was consulted what would be the speediest way to stop the progress of enthusiasm in it. The result we know not, only it was soon publicly reported that doctor and the censures were now going to blow up the godly club. This was now our common title though we were sometimes dignified with that of the enthusiast or the reform club. Part of the answer I received was as follows. Good sir, a pretty while after the date yours came to my hand, I waived my answer until I had an opportunity of consulting your father, who upon all accounts is a more proper judge of the affair than I am, but I could never find a fit occasion for it. As to my own sense of the matter, I, conf I confess I cannot but hardly approve that serious and religious turn of mind that prompts you and your associates to those pious and charitable offices, and can have no motion of that man's religion or concern for the honor of the university that opposes you as far as your design respects the colleges. 
I should be loath to send a son of mine to any seminary, where is conversing with virtuous young men, and whose professed design of meeting together at proper times was to assist each other in forming good resolutions, and encouraging one another to execute them with constancy and steadiness, was inconsistent with any received maxims or rules of life among the members. As to the other branch of your design, as the town is divided into parishes, each of which has its proper incumbent, and as there is probably an ecclesiastic who has the spiritual charge of the prisoners, Prudence may direct you to consult them. For though I dare not say you would be too officious, should you of your own mere motions seek out the persons that want your instructions and charitable contributions, yet should you have the concurrence of their proper pastor, your good offices would be more regular and less liable to censor. End quote. Your son was now at Holt. However, we continued to meet at our usual times, though our little affairs went on but heavily without him. But at our return from Lincolnshire in September last, we had the pleasure of seeing him again. But though he could not be so active with us as formerly, yet we were exceeding glad to spend what time we could in talking and reading with him. It was a little before this time my brother and I were at London when going into a bookseller's shop, Mr. Rivington's at St. Paul's Churchyard, after some other conversation, he asked us whether we lived in town and upon our answering, no, at Oxford. Then, gentlemen, said he, let me earnestly recommend to your acquaintance the friend I have there, Mr. Clayton of Brazen Nose. Of this, having small leisure for contracting new acquaintance, we took no notice for the present. But in the spring following, April 20th, Mr. Clayton meeting me in the street and giving Mr. Rivington's service, I desired his company to my room and then commenced our acquaintance. At the first opportunity, I acquainted him with our whole design, which he immediately and heartily closed with. And not long after, Mr. M., having then left Oxford, we fixed two evenings in a week to meet on, partly to talk upon that subject and partly to read something in practical divinity. The two points whereunto, by the blessing of God and your son's help, we had before attained, we endeavored to hold fast. I mean the doing what good we can, and in order thereunto communicating as often as we have opportunity. To these, by the advice of Mr. Clayton, we have added a third, the observing the fasts of the church, the general neglect of which we can by no means apprehend to be a lawful excuse for neglecting them. And in the resolution to adhere to these, and all things else which we are convinced God requires at our hands, we trust we shall preserve until he calls us to give an account of our stewardship. As for the names of Methodists, supererogation men, and so on, with which some of our neighbors are pleased to compliment us, we do not conceive ourselves to be under any obligation to regard them, much less to take them for arguments. To the law and to the testimony we appeal, whereby we ought to be judged. If by these it can be proved we are in error, we will immediately and gladly retract it. If not, we have not so learned Christ as to renounce any part of his service, though men should say all manner of evil against us, with more judgment and as little truth as hitherto. We do indeed use all the lawful means we know to prevent the good which is in us from being evil spoken of. But if the neglect of known duties be the one condition of securing our reputation, why, fare it well. We know whom we have believed, and what we thus lay out, he will pay us again. Your son already stands before the judgment seat of him who judges righteous judgment. At the brightness of whose presence the clouds remove, his eyes are open, and he, and he sees clearly whether it was blind zeal and a thorough mistake of true religion that hurried him on in the error of his way, or whether he acted like a faithful and wise servant, who from a just sense that his time was short made, made haste to finish his work before his Lord's coming, that when laid in the balance he might not be found wanting. 
I have now largely and plainly laid before you the real ground of all the strange outcry you have heard, and I am not without hope that by this fair representation of it than you probably ever received before, both you and the clergyman you formerly mentioned may have a more favorable opinion of a good cause, though under an ill name. Whether you have or no, I shall ever acknowledge my best services to be due to yourself and your family, both for the generous assistance you have given my father and for the invaluable advantages your son has under God bestowed on you, sir, your, and so on. John Wesley's journals continue 1735. He sets out for Georgia. Tuesday, October 15th. Mr. Benjamin Ingham of Queen's College, Oxford, Mr. Charles Delmont, son of a merchant in London, who had offered himself some days before, my brother Charles Wesley and I myself took boat for Gravesend in order to embark for Georgia. In the afternoon we found the Simmons off Gravesend and immediately went on board. Wednesday and Thursday we spent with one or two of our friends, partly on board and partly on shore, and exhorting one another to shake off every weight and to run with patience the race set before us. 1736, he preaches at Savannah, converses with the Indians. Sunday, March 7th. I entered upon my ministry at Savannah by preaching on the epistle for the day, being the 13th of the 1st of Corinthians. In the second lesson, Luke 18th, with our Lord's prediction of the treatment which he himself, and consequently his followers, was to meet with from the world and his gracious promises to those who are content. Verily I say unto you, there is no man that has left house or friends or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake, which shall not receive manifold more in this present time, and in the world to come everlasting life. Yet notwithstanding these plain declarations of our Lord, notwithstanding my own repeated experience, notwithstanding the experience of the sincere followers of Christ, whom I have ever talked with, read, or heard of, nay, in the reason of all the things evinced into a demonstration, that all who love not the light must hate him, who is continually laboring to pour it in upon them. I do here bear witness against myself, that when I saw the number of people crowding into the church, the deep attention with which they received the word, and the seriousness that afterwards sat on all their faces, I could scarce refrain from giving the lie to experience and reason and scripture altogether. I could hardly believe that the greater, the far greater part of this attentive, serious people would hereafter trample underfoot that word and say all manner of evil falsely of him that spake it. Oh, who can believe what their hearts abhor? Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Let us love thy cross, then shall we believe. If we suffer with thee, we shall also reign with thee. Not finding as yet any door for the pursuing of our main design, we considered in what manner we might be most useful to the little flock at Savannah. And we agreed first to advise the most serious among them to form themselves into a sort of little society and to meet once or twice a week in order to reprove, instruct, and exhort one another. Number two, to select out of these a small number for a more intimate union with each other, which might be forwarded partly by our conversing singly with each, and partly by inviting them all together to our house. And this, accordingly, we determined to do every Sunday in the afternoon. Wednesday, June 30th. I hope the door was opened, for going up immediately to the Choctaws, the least polished, the least corrupted of all the Indian nations. But upon my informing Mr. Oglethorpe of our design, he objected, not only of the danger of being intercepted or killed by the French there, but much more the inexpediency of leaving Savannah destitute of a minister. These objections are related to our brethren in the evening, who are all of opinion we ought not to go yet. Thursday, July 1st. The Indians had an audience and another on Saturday, when Chickalai, their head man, dined with Mr. Oglethorpe. 
After dinner I asked a gray-headed old man what he thought he was made for. He said, He that is above knows what he made us for. We know nothing. We are in the dark. But white men know much. And yet white men build great houses as if they were to live forever. In little time, white men will be dust as well as I. I told him, If red men will learn the good book, they may know as much as white men. But neither we nor you can understand that book unless we are taught by him that is above. And he will not teach unless you avoid what you already know is not good. He answered, I believe that. He will not teach us while our hearts are not white. And our men do what they know is not good. They kill their own children. And our women do what they know is not good. They kill the child before it is born. Therefore, he that is above does not send us a good book. 1737 Religious Discourses at a Visitation Negroes, Young People, Mr. Wesley Returns to England Friday, April 22 It being the time of their annual visitation, I had the pleasure of meeting with the clergy of South Carolina, among whom in the afternoon there was such a conversation of several hours on Christ our righteousness as I had not heard on any visitation in England, or hardly on any other occasion. Saturday the 23rd, mentioning to Mr. Thompson, minister of St. Bartholomew's near Pompon, by being disappointed of a passage home by water, he offered me one of his horses if I would go by land, which I gladly accepted of. He went with me twenty miles and sent his servant to guide me the other twenty to his house. Finding a young negro there, who seemed more sensible than the rest, I asked her how long she had been in Carolina. She said two or three years, but that she was born in Barbados and had lived there in a minister's family from a child. I asked whether she went to church there. She said, yes, every Sunday, to carry my mistress' children. I asked what she had learned at church. She said, nothing. I heard a deal, but did not understand it. But what did your master teach you at home? Nothing. Nor your mistress? No. I asked, but don't you know that your hands and feet and this you call your body will turn to dust in a little time? She answered, yes. But there is something in you that will not turn to dust, and this is what they call your soul. Indeed, you cannot see your soul, though it is within you, as you cannot see the wind, though it is all about you. But if you had not a soul in you, you can no more see or hear or feel than this table can. What do you think will become of your soul when your body turns to dust? I don't know. Why, it will go out of your body and go up there above the sky and live always. God lives there. Do you know who God is? No. You cannot see Him any more than you can see your own soul. It is He that made you and me, and all men and women, and all beasts and birds, and all the world. It is He that makes the sun shine, and rain fall, and corn and fruits to grow out of the ground. He makes all these for us. But what do you think He made us? What did He make you and me for? I can't tell. He made you to live with Himself above the sky. And so you will in a little time, if you are good. When your body dies, your soul will go up and want nothing, and have whatever you can desire. No one will beat or hurt you there. You will never be sick. You will never be sorry any more, nor afraid of anything. I can't tell you. I don't know how happy you will be, for you will be with God. The attention with which this poor creature listened to instruction is inexpressible. The next day she remembered all, readily answered every question, and said, she would ask him that made her to show her how to be good. Sunday, 24th. I preached twice at Pon Pon Chapel on the 13th chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians. Oh, how will even these men of Carolina who come eight to ten or twelve miles to hear the gospel rise in judgment against those who hear it not when it is preached at their own doors? Wednesday, the 27th. I came to Mr. Bellinger's plantation at Cholofini where the rain kept me till Friday. 
Here I met with an half-Indian, one that had an Indian mother and a Spanish father, and several Negroes, who were very desirous of instruction. One of them said, When I was at Ashley Ferry, I went to church every Sunday, but here we are buried in the woods. Though if there was any church within five or six miles, I am so lame I can't walk, but I would crawl thither. Mr. Bellinger sent a Negro lad with me to Purisburg, or rather to the poor remains of it. Oh, how hath God stretched over this place the lines of confusion and the stones of emptiness. Alas, for those whose lives were here vilely cast away. This lad, too, I found very desirous and very capable of instruction. And perhaps one of the easiest and shortest ways to instruct the American Negroes in Christianity would be the first to inquire after and find out some of the most serious of the planters. Then having inquired of them, which of their slaves were best inclined, and understood English to go to them from plantation to plantation, staying as long as appeared necessary to each. Three or four gentlemen in Carolina I have been with that would be sincerely glad of such an assistant, who might pursue his work with no more hindrances than must everywhere attend the preaching of the gospel. May 29th. Being Whit Sunday, four of our scholars, after having been instructed daily for several weeks, were at their earnest and repeated desire admitted to the Lord's table. I trust their zeal has stirred up many to remember their creators in the days of their youth, and to redeem the time even in the midst of an evil and adulterous generation. Indeed, about this time, we observed the Spirit of God to move upon the minds of many of the children. They began more carefully to attend to the things that were spoken both at home and at church, and a remarkable seriousness appeared in their whole behavior and conversation. October the 7th, I consulted my friends whether God did not call me to return to England. The reason for which I left it had now no force, there being no possibility as yet of instructing the Indians, and as to Savannah, having never engaged myself, either by word or letter, to stay there a day longer than I should judge convenient, nor even taken charge of the people any otherwise than as a passage to the heathens, I looked upon myself to be fully discharged therefrom by the vacating of that design. Besides, there was a probability of doing more service to that unhappy people in England than I could do in Georgia, by representing without fear or favor to the trustees the real estate the colony was in. Friday, December 2nd, I left Georgia after having preached the gospel there, not as I ought, but as I was able, one year and nearly nine months. 1738, Wesley visits Hernhuth in Germany, the constitution of the church there, as it was in the year 1733. He returns to England, preaches frequently, Northampton Narrative. Wednesday, June 7th. I determined, if God should permit, to retire for a short time into Germany. I fully proposed before I left Georgia, so to do, if it should please God to bring me back to Europe. I hope that conversing with those holy men, who are themselves living witnesses of the full power of faith, and yet able to bear with those that are weak, would be a means under God of so establishing my soul that I might go on from faith to faith and from strength to strength. Tuesday, August 1st. I came to Hernhuth about 30 miles from Dresden. It lies in Upper Lusatia, on the border of Bohemia, and contains about an hundred horses built on a rising ground. On Friday and Saturday, and so every day in the following week, I had much conversation with the most experienced of the brethren concerning the great work which God had wrought in their souls, purifying them by faith. And when Martin Dober and the other teachers and elders of the church concerning the disciples used therein, the sermon which Christian David preached concerning the ground of our faith made such an impression upon me that when I went home I could not but write down the substance of it, part of which follows, quote, The word of reconciliation which the apostles preached is the foundation of all they taught was that we are reconciled to God 
not by our own works, nor by our own righteousness, but wholly and solely by the blood of Christ. But you will say, Must not I grieve and mourn for my sins? Must not I humble myself before God? Is not this just and right? And must I not first do this before I can expect God to be reconciled to me? I answer, It is just and right. You must be humble before God. You must have a broken and contrite heart. But then observe, this is not your own work. Do you grieve that you are a sinner? This is the work of the Holy Ghost. Are you contrite? Are you humble before God? Do you indeed mourn? And is your heart broken within you? All this work is the self-same spirit. Observe again, this is not the foundation. It is not this by which you are justified. This is not the righteousness. This is no part of the righteousness by which you are reconciled unto God. You grieve for your sins. You are deeply humble. Your heart is broken. Well, but all this is nothing to your justification. Understand this well. To think you must be more contrite, more humble, more grieved, more sensible of the way to sin before you can be justified is to lay your contrition, your grief, your humiliation for the foundation of your being justified, at least for a part of the foundation. The foundation is not your contrition, though that is not your own, not your righteousness, nothing of your own, nothing that is wrought in you by the Holy Ghost, but it is something without you, the righteousness of the blood of Christ. For this is the word, to him that believeth on God, that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. See ye not that the foundation is nothing in us? There is no connection between God and the ungodly. There is no tie to unite them. They are altogether separate from each other. They have nothing in common. There is nothing less or more in the ungodly to join them to God. Works? Righteousness? Contrition? No. Ungodliness only. This then do if you will lay a right foundation. Go straight to Christ with all your ungodliness. Tell him, Thou whose eyes are as a flame of fire, search in my heart, seest that I am ungodly. I plead nothing else. I do not say I am humble or contrite, but I am ungodly. Therefore bring me to him that justifieth the ungodly. Let thy blood be the propitiation for me. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.